following episode of Grad Chat will discuss sexual violence, which some listeners might find troubling and or triggering. Discretion is advised. G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. So today, I'd like to introduce you to Melanie Pru, who is doing a PhD in Cultural Studies under the supervision of Drs. Amanda White and Dorit Naiman. Welcome to Grad Chat, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! I love it when, when our students say that to me because I, I hope they're excited and it's good when, when, they, when they are. And again, it's really nice that Melanie reached out and said, yes, I'd like to come on. And I think, oh, excellent, excellent. All good training for the students. And of course, I get to myself and of course, all of you out there get to hear what the research has been, has been going on. And we've got a great show for you today. So first of all, though, when I read Melanie's overview of her research, I was a little taken aback, taken aback by how brave she is at not only doing this particular research involving sexual violence, but also brave in putting her own experiences as a rape survivor out there. So this interview might be difficult for some listeners, although we hope it will show you are not alone and there are people like Melanie trying to find ways to help others overcome these sorts of experiences. It is a bit of a heavy topic. So with that, I guess I should say what your research topic is, Melanie, and it is the representation of sexual violence in comics, which... I thought in comics was an interesting part there. We'll certainly get on to that shortly. But I guess my first question to you is why you wanted to use your ex- personal experience to help your research? Or was it because of your experiences that you felt you needed to do something to help others? I'm glad that you asked that question because I love talking about it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Actually... I had a little bit of mixed feelings about taking on this project. First of all, I firmly believe that those of us who have the wherewithal to take on this kind of labor, an ethical responsibility to do so on behalf of the people that can't. And I know that personally, I am able to do this kind of work. I do uh, get re-traumatized sometimes as I'm going through the process, but I also know that I have a really good support system in place with my therapist and my friends and my partner that I'm able to do this kind of work. And it's the kind of work I think that really benefits rape survivors themselves undertaking it, because who understands us better than ourselves and people with our experience. Like psychology and other sciences are often so disconnected from the actual experiences of the people who are going through it that I thought it was really important for a survivor to undertake this research and to look at how do I feel when I'm looking at comics 
that have sexual violence in them. I think that that's an area that's really lacking and that psychologists and other researchers can try to interview people as much as they want, but it's really different when you're a survivor yourself and you're using an embodiment methodology. By that, I mean a methodology that takes into account how I feel in my body, like what my responses are emotionally, physically to these texts. I think that that's valuable information and that's how I'm undertaking this project. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to undertake this project is because I thought that it's something that I kind of have to do as a survivor because the area is lacking. On a more personal note, I also wanted to undertake the project because sexual violence makes you feel so helpless uh, because it just takes away your agency. And so I'm constantly looking for ways to assert my agency and kind of get that back and to feel like I can do things. And so one of my strategies as a rape survivor is to undertake work about sexual violence to educate non-survivors and to help other survivors. That's one of my core values as a person, as a feminist, as a survivor, is I want to help as many survivors as I can to get through this, uh, which is why I'm a, the main reason really why I'm undertaking this work. And I'm deciding to draw my own graphic novel about my own experience is because I know that in reading these works, you feel not alone. And you also learn more about yourself, which is really important when you're healing from trauma. And if right. I can help teach some others empathy as well, I know empathy is not the only solution to end sexual violence. People also need to understand that it's a systematic issue, which is something else I'm going to address in my work. Right. But if I can also help instill some empathy in other people, then that's that would be amazing. Wow, it's it's a heavy topic, but it's it sounds like not being going through that experience, and you're, you're very right where, you know, psychologists and things and other people can say all the things under the world but unless you've experienced it yourself you really don't have a proper understanding Mm -hmm. of the different traumas that you may be going through so like I said I take my hat off to you for putting this forward and using your own experience to try and not only help others but I hope it also is going to help you too uh, going going through this process of a dissertation because it's not easy (laughs) (laughs) a dissertation at the best of time but particularly on a topic that is so personal for you yes I'm happy that you mentioned that actually because in undertaking the process it has been already helping me better understand myself like yes it's cathartic because I'm getting to share my story and I'm getting to hopefully help other survivors and that's great but as I'm undertaking the research and reading more about the theory of sexual violence trauma and re-experiencing I'm learning more about myself and my own triggers and so it's really cool to be like oh my gosh now I understand why this is a trigger for me (laughs) like it's really been a really amazing process and I'm excited to see how it continues to develop especially as I do more drawing for my for my graphic novel as well so you know your topic is the representation of sexual violence in comics when I first read that I was thinking one of two things is it representation of sexual violence in a storyline of a comic or is it a comic to help sexual violence Mm. Um, survivors and I'm thinking it's the former or it's both okay it's actually both so the goal of my project is to try 
to minimize the risk of triggering survivors. This is my goal, is to find what aesthetic strategies or what I call distancing narrative features, that's aesthetic choices artists can make to help prevent survivors from becoming, uh, from experiencing, re-experiencing, or from being triggered. That's the goal of my project. In order to do that, I'm looking at the representation of sexual violence in different kinds of comics as well. I'm looking a little bit at comic books. I'm looking at graphic novels. I'm looking at zines, at web comics, mostly focusing on women because I'm particularly interested in uh, women's experiences. Unfortunately, whenever you do a doctorate, you have to have a really narrow scope because there's just <laughs> so, so much. much information out there. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to really hone down. So I'm looking specifically at women's experiences. I'm particularly interested in looking at memoirs of sexual violence that women have have created, uh, mostly in graphic novel form. So I'm actually looking at a whole host of different kinds of, of comics that explore sexual violence, but I'm mostly focusing on, on how women represent their own experiences, because I think that that's a really rich area, and I can learn from the strategies that they use on right. how to minimize um, survivors. So it's, it's interesting, because w- when I think of comic, I think of Bino and you know the cartoons that we have yes. in the in the newspapers and yeah. and, the, and things like that. I don't always think of some of those other things that mm-hmm. are just graphic novels type yes. type thing. So I think that's an important distinction that not people may have had the same understanding yes. as me is that oh it's just this fun thing but there's some sexual violence within it. Mm-hmm whether it's intentional or not, it's there. So uh, thank you for that. I think the big part that you said is you keep using this word triggering, which to me means something is being shown that's going to offset or set off again the the experience. But I imagine triggering can be very different in each person. So you know, mm-hmm. why is it important to be mindful of when discussing materials about trauma and this word mm-hmm. triggering? Yes. Okay. So you, you got the definition spot on. When I say triggering, I mean re-experiencing, which is one of the most common symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So when you have, when you experience re-experiencing, it's like if you're reliving the moment of the trauma. And it's also known as intrusive memories sometimes, which is a little bit misleading because you're not experiencing them as a full cohesive memory a lot of the times. It's more kind of sensory fragments, and that varies a lot depending on the person. So, for example, in media, the most common symptom of uh, PTSD that you see is flashbacks, which is true. The the main uh, kind of sensory re-experiencing symptom that people get are visual a lot of the times. However, it can also be other stuff. It can be touch. It can be smell. For me personally, when I uh, when I'm triggered, it's a it's a feeling. It's an overwhelming sensation of helplessness or overwhelming kind of like discomfort in my body. So it really varies on the person. So there are many different kinds of triggers for re-experiencing. One of the main ones is usually visual, but again, it can be so many different things. It can be uh, sounds, smells, sights. It can even be an emotion. This is why triggers are so hard to predict is because they vary so greatly for everyone and they don't really make thematic sense a lot of the time. Intuitively, you would think that the height of the traumatic experience would represent the trigger, right? So 
let's say that somebody that you were stabbed, you would think that the sight of a knife would be what would set you off. But that's not actually the case. According to recent studies, what is the common trigger for people is actually what happens just before the height of the traumatic event. So the idea, the hypothesis behind this is that it functions as a kind of warning system for your body. If I see this, I know that something bad is going to happen. So a famous example is there was this man who was uh, kidnapped and forced to stay in a cellar. And before the, the kidnappers would open the cell, he would hear their footsteps and then a knock. And so what was triggering for him was the sound of footsteps that would trigger him to hear a knocking sound, which would make him panic because it's his body saying, you need to hide, you need to protect yourself. So this is an example of the warning signal hypothesis is what it's called. This explains why triggers are so hard to predict and why they vary so greatly for people. And I guess in rape victims too, like you said, lots of different triggers there because mm-hmm. depends on where that experience happened. And so there's place exactly. as well as it could be in a social context. Yes. It could be in, in this other context. And so it just exacerbates, I guess. But so, so how do how do we make sure that with through comics and things that I mean it's very hard for whoever's putting these graphic forms graphic novels Mm -hmm. or comics together to think of every scenario is it you're trying to sort of highlight in your studies you know in this particular thing it's a situation that's happened and but they didn't think about possible triggers yeah um, in general so maybe they should never even put it in in the first place I don't know I mean, right. you can't, sometimes you can't hide from these things, can we? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. My goal is really not censorship. I think that sexual violence is really important to talk about. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can't talk about sexual violence in comics without talking about fridging. There's a really big difference between women sharing their experiences or just survivors in general sharing their experiences of sexual violence. And then what happens in a lot of comic books and TV and stuff, which is known as Fridging, which is where women experience sexual violence or are killed just as a plot device for male development. So, for example, um, in comic books, a woman will be killed and it's not about her pain or her story. It's about the superhero now being like, oh, I am devastated because now my girlfriend is dead and I have to deal with this. And so it's really minimizing the sexual violence against women right, and making it about the men. So the important thing is not to avoid sexual violence. Obviously, it's really problematic if you're just using it as a plot device. Mm -hmm. That's really bad. Don't do that. (laughs) But it's really important to talk about because it is a real issue. And so my goal with this project is really not censorship. It's just to give artists tools and the knowledge to know okay, I want to include sexual violence in my book because it's an experience that I've had or I have a character who's a rape survivor, so I want them to have a flashback or something. What tools are at my disposal to minimize the risk of triggering my audience? Because sometimes comic artists like to be a little bit indulgent in their representations of sexual violence and they'll make something really graphic just for shock value and to... um, attract audience attention. This was a really big problem in the 1970s in underground comics with uh, misogynistic male authors who would just draw really graphic sexual violence against women to attract audience attention and to kind of seem groundbreaking, but actually being so. Exactly. So I'm just hoping to encourage artists to be mindful and to know 
that there are strategies that they can use to still share their stories in a way that makes them less traumatizing for that's, those of us. Yeah, so hmm? exactly. That's the they want them to still read comics without as you said, re-traumatizing some readership or viewers. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to work out some of these strategies? Mm -hmm. Because, well, first of all, it's working out the strategies and then how to get it to people to do that moving forward within Mm -hmm. whatever format they're using in their comics. Mm -hmm. So that's the exciting part is my methodology is really different than uh, what we do like in the sciences or a lot of other department. Cultural studies grants you a lot of freedom in terms of methodology. So I am combining autoethnography and embodiment methodology. Autoethnography is when you kind of look at yourself as an example of a group. So I'm drawing on my experience as a rape survivor and then applying that to other rape survivors. And I know that obviously rape survivors have different experiences, especially I have a lot of privilege as a rape survivor. Like, first of all, I'm white and I pass as straight and I pass as able-bodied. So I have a lot of privilege and my experience as a rape survivor will be different than, let's say, a woman of colors. And I acknowledge that. However, I believe that there's still some knowledge that we can gain or that I can share from my experience, hopefully. My goal is to not lay a foundation, but kind of have like an idea, a spark and encourage other people to run with it and to build on that knowledge. So I'm using autoethnography and embodiment methodology is when you're drawing on the knowledge of your body as opposed to your mind. So for example, I'm going to be reading different comics that feature sexual violence in them. And then I'm going to be noting how I respond emotionally and physically to comics. Uh, So for example, some of them I can be like more okay with reading and others I will just feel like throwing up or others will re-traumatize me really quickly. Can you give me some examples of the kind of comics that you're looking at? Because I don't think I've read a comic with sexual violence in it, but (laughs) yeah, so it's not something that people would necessarily go and buy off the racks in the supermarket (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah sure so a lot of the times sexual violence in comics at least women's experiences are published as alternative comics so you have to go to small presses and indie publishers or feminist presses specifically to find uh, these comics. But there's actually a lot of them. A lot of women have been making comics about sexual violence for a really long time, actually since at least the 70s, as a response to underground comics that were really sexist and misogynistic and racist that were circulating. Women decided, well, that's not my experience. And so to kind of fight back against that or to feel represented themselves, they started taking to comics and writing their own experiences. So women have actually been using comics to share their stories about sexual violence for a really long time. And a few examples off top of my head that are really famous, at least in the comics world, (laughs) (laughs) for for comic scholars such as myself. (laughs) Uh, The big names are like, Linda Berry, for example, or Phoebe Glockner, she's amazing. There's uh, Kaminsky Crumb, who's really big. Julie Doucet, really good. Ugh, there's and and these there's, and these yeah. comics from these women are giving a different view of what sexual violence is in their comics, yes. as opposed to the male comics. Yes, exactly. Not obviously not 
not all comics by male authors glorify sexual violence, but it is definitely a problem. Um, And so what women comics do differently is they kind of flip that on their head and they're like, well, no, sexual violence is not, it's not necessarily, it's not erotic. It's like literally traumatizing. Traumatizing. So so they use different strategies to emphasize that. Um, One of my one of my favorite comic artists, Phoebe Glockner, for example, she's a medical illustrator. And so she uses that to her advantage. She draws hyper-realistic genitalia that are oversized to emphasize the threatening aspect of rape right. and of impending violence, right. especially because her stories are from a child's perspective, because uh, that was her experience. She's a childhood rape survivor or a sexual violence survivor. So to emphasize how like small she was and how threatening right. her assaulter is, she makes these really kind of horrifying, hyper-realistic, phallic images, images that are both like horrifying, but also beautiful to look at because she's such an, a talented artist. Right, right. Uh, yes, exactly. And you can go in the complete opposite direction as well. Like Linda Berry, for example, who's another phenomenal comic artist, implies sexual violence going completely different than Phoebe Glockner. She never actually shows sexual violence. It's just heavily implied in her work. For example, at one point, I believe it in 100 Demons, uh, she says that she already... As a child, she already knew about sex. She found out about it in harsh ways. So right. you know that, okay, she's a rape survivor, but it's not triggering because she's avoiding any detail and you can still follow her and understand what she's talking about. So they use a lot of different strategies actually to to share their experiences and talk about sexual violence, which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this project because there's so many different paths that you can take to share your story in a way that like everyone can read. Do do you see those two authors that you just talked about? Do you see them as educators and or are they educators and or helpers? Yes, definitely. Well, Linda Berry first and foremost, because she actually is a comics teacher. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) So I think like anytime that you're writing about sexual violence or you're writing about your experience, you're, you are going to help people. So it kind of makes you like a default educator because people are going to learn from it and kind of help themselves from it. But there's people who like will actually try to make activist comics such as myself or try to push that even further. So for example, um, Phoebe Glockner was invited to do a school presentation about her, her book. I think it was A Child's Life, which discusses childhood sexual violence so she was going to talk about that and do a talk about childhood sexual violence but then it was cancelled because she was accused of child pornography or the school was just uncomfortable with her talking about it and she was very disappointed because as she said childhood sexual violence is so common and people don't talk about it and so it's even more isolating for survivors so this book or at least this conversation needs to happen in schools and people or like adults use the pretext of like, oh no, we have to protect kids and we have to keep them safe, but they're already experiencing this. They're already experiencing so the adults we don't want them to be naive, do we? Yes, exactly. So the adults are just trying to make themselves feel better and it's coming at the cost of kids and young kids. people because young people are the ones who get sexually assaulted the most statistically speaking. They're the ones who are paying the price because we are uncomfortable 
talking discussing about these things and it is uncomfortable it should make you uncomfortable if it doesn't there is something, something wrong. wrong with you good point <laughs> so is this why i'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here no that you made your own picture book called the bum drum conundrum yes the little preview says teaches children about consent and that saying no is okay mm-hmm. is this one of those educational pieces that mm-hmm. first of all may have helped you creating the book but at this your own for your, yourself but also because of what you've just said we need to make sure our children understand that the world isn't always a nice place mm-hmm. and these are some things some tools we can use ourselves to help protect mm-hmm. ourselves Yes, that's exactly one of the reasons why my co-author and I decided to write The Bum Drum Conundrum. Um, we both really love kids books and we were really frustrated with the the stereotypes and just the lack of representation in comics. And so we really wanted to make a comic book that would also help teach kids about consent so that they understand that like sometimes someone will do something that makes you uncomfortable and you're allowed to say no. But wow. something that the back of the book doesn't <laughs> stress, which is also really important, is that the bum drum conundrum also teaches kids that you have to ask permission before touching people and that people uh, don't enjoy the same thing. So in the book, right. what happens is our main character, Melina, goes to the park and her friends are playing a new game of tag where you have to tap other kids butts like a drum and shout bum drum <laughs> so oh that's i see right is. that's what it is yes. right so it's a bum drum conundrum <laughs> yes but it makes her really uncomfortable she doesn't want her butt to be touched and one of her friends just has a really hard time wrapping his head around it he's like i don't understand it's just it's just a game it's just fun and so his father explains to him that right. people like different things and you always have to ask permission before touching someone because you're making them uncomfortable and he uses the example of like well you wouldn't like it if someone were to kiss you would you and the kid is like ew no kisses are gross and so the dad's like exactly that's how melina feels about having her butt touched or like right. you tapping her butt for the bum drum right so we really wanted to make sure that we stressed that you are allowed to say no in terms of consent, but also consent is a two-way streak. Like we really don't want a victim blame here. Other people also need to understand that you have to make sure that the other person who you're engaging with is comfortable with what is going on. So being a rape survivor definitely impacted our decision to to write this book um actually it's kind of a longer story because we were trying to implement change higher up like at the university level because we were noticing a lot of sexist comments and sexual violence happening at the university where we were and we were trying to make change there and we just kept hitting brick walls so we realized that we had to shift our perspective and go for a younger audience and there weren't really any kids books about consent published at the time so we figured it was something really important to do and we got very lucky to to find a publisher who who let us share this story because it's kind of a sexual violence is a hard sell even if there's not actually any sex or violence in the bum jump conundrum it still kind of makes people uncomfortable so I've uh, ordered the book and it hasn't arrived yet but to me it would also make it easier perhaps for parents Mm-hmm. to alert their children you know because not everyone is comfortable talking about certain topics no. particularly anything of the sexual nature yeah. some, some parents <laughs> are like oh my god they're just going to figure it out because I yeah. can't talk about it <laughs> but if if they've got a book that they can give and maybe read together mm-hmm. so they can discuss things together about exactly that you know everyone 
wants thing has different reactions to different things. So we need mm-hmm. to be cognizant of that yes. and respectful of that. Great. So having books like that to me make a really good sense. So so is this sort of book getting picked up in say our education mm-hmm. uh, in our teacher education and and things like that or is it That's yes, that's our goal. Unfortunately, it's really hard to get into curriculum right. as we as we've noticed the first year that the book was published we did a really big push trying to get into school boards because obviously it's a really important mm-hmm. topic and we had a lot of teachers who ordered the book tell us how much they appreciate because they wanted to talk about it with their students and they just really had no idea how do I how do I even begin to how do I approach this so we've right. had a lot of positive feedback from teachers and from from uh, parents as well who has helped spark discussions with kids but we haven't had a lot of success getting it into schools just because we were published by a really small publisher in the UK that does not have a distribution network in America yet. Oh no! So we okay. are the sole distributor right now in America. So, well, I, I got it off Amazon. So there yes, you go. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness for international shipping. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So, so let's bring it back to your work. I mean, because that that book is more about what we can do to help. Um, kids and, and adults explain to kids mm-hmm. yes. um, um, so getting back to your work your research with what you're doing which is is about your experiences and trying to explain things of you know what are triggers and what have you mm-hmm. so what is the end result that you're looking for here to come out mm-hmm. other than as you've already noted that it's this whole process has been helping you as well mm-hmm. so I have two main goals with the project I have an academic goal and I have an activist goal which is why I decided to undertake a research creation project as opposed to a traditional thesis. So basically what I'm doing is I'm doing a combination of academic work, but also a creative project to share the research that I am um, undertaking. Right. So I have an academic goal. This academic goal is to contribute, obviously, to the field of comic studies by changing the focus to rape survivors. Uh, in terms of looking at representations of sexual violence, I want to move the conversation in, from the theoretical to the practical and be like, let's look at how real people are actually impacted by this, which ties into my activist goal, which is why I'm creating my own graphic novel to share right. this knowledge and my own experience as well. I really want to show people that are not survivors that rape is not or sexual violence is not something that lasts as long as the actual assault yeah. lasts. It's like it's a lifetime thing. I will right. always be a rape survivor. I will always have triggers and be more like easily re-traumatized or experience right. experiencing. That's just a piece of who I am and I'm fine with that. And it does get better over time. It does. But like my body will always remember and that's fine. And so I want to show people that aren't survivors how serious sexual violence is. And I want to do a better job of showing what post-traumatic stress disorder is like, because in media, there's just always one image of war veterans who have PTSD and flashbacks. That's like the main representations of post 
traumatic stress disorder. And as a rape survivor, it's really alienating. And I actually doubted a whether I was actually a rape survivor for a long time, because my rapist was my partner, which is actually a super common experience, but doesn't get talked about in the media. So I felt like a fraud for a long time. And I felt like I wasn't actually a rape survivor for a long time. And like when I experience re-experiencing, it's not flashbacks. It's an overwhelming feeling of helplessness. And so for a long time too, I was like, ah, like, do I even, like my therapist told me like, yes, you have PTSD, but I was still like, I don't, that's not my experience. So how can I, so I want to do a better job of showing PTSD for other survivors who similarly don't just have flashbacks so that they understand that uh, this is a part of the healing process, the re-experiencing, the hypervigilance, the the heightened startle reflex. Like these things don't make you crazy. It's just how your body and your brain are healing from the trauma. And that's really important to stress Mm -hmm. because when survivors don't understand that it's a normal part of the healing process, they kind of get a mental defeatist attitude where they're like, I'm broken. I'm wrecked. I'm no longer human. This is just who I am now and it's never going to get better. And that makes the PTSD worse. So it's really important actually that survivors understand that it's just a normal part of the healing journey and that it varies from person to person. But I also want non-survivors to understand this too, so that people, to build empathy and for people to hopefully think twice if they're thinking well, about assaulting someone. Well, there's that, but it's also the other part too. I mean, you said your your experience was your partner. How do you then mm-hmm. go on and figure out ways to, to to handle all of this and still look for another partner. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then what do you teach your partner? Yes. So they have an understanding of what mm-hmm. maybe your triggers are. Yes. I, I mean, that's a whole other thing there, right, is how we can help yes. our future partners if if you want to let someone else into your life. Yes, exactly. That's another another part of the book that I'm really interested in, or my research that I'm actually really interested in uh, exploring. Because since I've... uh, The thing about um, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder is that it doesn't necessarily happen instantly after the trauma. This is kind of a stereotype. It can take weeks, months, sometimes even years before the post-traumatic stress disorder develops. It's when something in your mind kind of just clicks and you the full impact of the trauma hits you. So for me, the post-traumatic stress disorder developed, I think it was around five years after the okay. the actual fact. And so now that I am I'm in a new relationship and I'm also undertaking this work at the same time, it's actually been kind of a blessing for my project because I'm learning how do I share with my partner. It was actually really easy to tell him. It's harder when you're trying to be intimate. That's that's right. where the difficulty is for me personally. And then sharing with him like, oh when you say this, that's re-traumatizing for me. So don't right. phrase something this way. Or right. like, if you touch me like on my shoulder or something, that is re-traumatizing to me because that's what my ex did before the full impact of, right. of the trauma, right? So that's what's what's more difficult for me personally is mm-hmm. sharing the the details. But it's been it's been really wonderful because he's a really amazing person and he's super into consent. And so it's really nice to know as a rape survivor that wow, there are some people that take yeah. consent really, really seriously. seriously. Like he even yeah. <laughs> he asked permission, he's like, is it okay if I touch your back? Can I rub your back? Is this okay? <laughs> Well, it seems like he's a lovely bloke, so I'm very happy for you. You found someone (laughs) to that. 
Melanie, this has been an amazing topic. And I, again, I do appreciate you coming on and being so vocal about it and, and honest. And it's, it can't be easy. And uh, But I do appreciate you, you saying this. And so all our listeners, I hope uh, this has taught us all a lot for those of us who haven't, luckily have not had that experience that um, others have that uh, there's some things that we can do to sort of help out too mm-hmm. along the way. And I, I'm sure your your work is going to be well and truly looked at really closely and uh, be very helpful for a lot of different people, I'm sure. So thank you for doing this this research. My pleasure. Good. And, and I strongly recommend people, if you've got kids and things, go and buy the bum drum conundrum. Uh, you, you can get it on Amazon because I found it the other day really, really easily. So uh, you may want to check that out if you're uncertain of how to talk to your children about certain aspects of, of life and living. So go and do that. So thank you. That's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.